We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. He turns. He fires for the win. He's got the bucket at the buzzer. Weather back to Bibby. Has the open shot. Ladies and gentlemen, up on those feet, put those hands together. And we'll meet tonight starting five for your Sacramento Kings. Welcome to the Kings Beat Podcast. I am James Ham, your Kings Insider for ESPN 1320 and the Kings Beat Joining me, Mr. Brendan Nunez from the King's Pulse podcast and, of course, the King's Herald. Brendan, what's going on? Not too much, James. I've been enjoying watching the play-in tournament and the first round of the NBA playoffs. They've been pretty exciting. Yeah, that has well, been exciting. they're kind of hit or miss. Some of the series are, are maybe a little bit more boring to watch, but there's been a lot of exciting games. There has been. There's been, like, some chaos. There's been... A game winner. There's been uh, Kyrie Irving just got fined fifty thousand dollars, fifty thousand um, dollars for uh, flipping off the fans, uh, for telling a fan to do something, uh, and then for his media post game media where he dropped a bunch of f bombs. He went full De'Aaron Fox on us, dropped a bunch of f bombs. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the one thing we're learning, right? You, when you play in obscurity in Sacramento, you don't get fined for dropping F-bombs in postgame uh, when you're in the playoffs. Yeah, when you're in the playoffs, that happens, right? Yeah. Nobody even noticed it happened with the air. <laughs> yeah, no one even noticed. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's good stuff. Um, okay, let's get to a couple of uh, business things. Uh, first and foremost, um, I'm going to bump back the off the record with the Kings Beat uh, virtual happy hour until April 28th, um, having some scheduling issues. And so I need to make sure that we're all lined up and everything's right um, so we can do this thing the right way because I don't like those things to go off kilter. I, that's one of those things where you want to have the best product possible. And in order to do that, I need a few more days. Uh, so we're going to push back to April 28th uh, from 530 to 730. That, of course, is for premium subscribers to the King's Beat. If you're not a premium sub a subscriber to the King's Beat, you need to be a premium subscriber. Uh, so that's how you get the invite to the happy hour, which is a huge amount of fun and crazy. Um, I think I'm going to have shirts made here in the next couple of days, uh, sort of 
talking about the King's Beat off off the record with the King's Beat uh, virtual happy hour. Um, number two, we're running a survey on the King's Beat. Um, we've already had tons of responses, which is awesome. Uh, if you have not done the survey yet, uh, I'll even put it in the link of down below, um, here, if you're watching on YouTube, um, and we're just trying to collect some data. So when we go out to market the podcast and stuff like that, um, we have a little bit more information and also it's giving some good feedback about what people want to listen to, what they want to read about. And, uh, we'll, we'll try to focus as much on that stuff as possible, um, you know, sometimes we, some of those topics we can handle, some of those, uh, we might avoid here and there, and there would be specific reasons that maybe we'll talk about on something like the off the record with the King's Beat virtual happy hour. Um, lastly, I, uh, did throw in a new, uh, 15% discount code, um, for apparel on the King's Beat, uh, so you can get cool sweatshirts like this because the weather just seems to keep doing weird things. Um, or you can get t-shirts or we're, we've got hats, all kinds of cool stuff. So 15% off. Um, it will be down below in the link and also in the email if you do get the uh, – you subscribe to the email list. Um, it's going to be capital K-B-P-O-D, Kingsbeat Pod. Um, that's going to be for 15% off um, your Kingsbeat Apparel. Uh, Brandon, you have any, any things you need to throw out here? Uh, you certainly started doing podcasting, uh, on, on draft picks. Um, you know, what do you want to promote here? Yeah. I mean, anybody that's on YouTube, definitely give this show a thumbs up and thumbs up. check out King's Pulse doing draft coverage and getting fully into it right now. Bryant West and I just did Jabari Smith Jr. and Chet Holmgren. And we're not going to do the entire top right away. Our, our next two is going to be Tari Eveson and Jalen Duran. Just kind of going to mix in some guys that maybe aren't consensus top 10 at the same time um, as because we're going to get, you know, at least 30 into this. So eventually we'll come back to Keegan Murray, Jaden Ivey, Paulo Benchero. All those guys will happen soon. But next up is... Tarice and Jalen Duran, and I think it's important to know a little bit further in the draft class too. Even guys that maybe wouldn't typically go in the Kings range of, if you want to say seven, eight, nine, even, or or jumping into top four, because as we know, there's always scenarios of trading back, or um, yeah, lots of complications that go on throughout the draft process. So important to know a lot of the guys there, and that's what I'm getting started. So sweet, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna do mock. I'm going to do mocks a little bit different this year than I have in the past years, but uh, the first mock is coming up. So people know I'm going to start uh, busting out the mock machine and, and doing those here in the next couple of days. Um, and so I think by the end of the week, I'll have a mock up, uh, which is good. I don't think I'll do 30 uh, to start with the mock. I think we'll build, um, but I'm also going to do some interesting things with consensus mocks. And, and so we have a better idea of what like a, a general consensus would be as, as far as like players and how they would fit. And then as we get closer to the draft, I'll start giving more of my opinion on where I believe players should go uh, because I'm very split with some of the experts on, on certain players. And I'm certainly, um, I know there's someone that listens to the Kings beat, uh, watches the Kings beat that hates my take on Keegan Murray, absolutely hates it. And I'm just one. Keep- 
uh, well, there's a, well, there's one that like <laughs> continuously wants to say that they hate it, and I get it. I totally get it. Um, but that's just it's just my opinion. I I've, I've been watching draft picks uh, and how they they develop and all this stuff for for many 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 years and doing mock drafts and stuff like that. So um, yeah, we even like we were talking player comps before we got on here and uh, Tari Eason. Like I, I I think he looks a little bit like Josh Smith. Uh, former Atlanta Hawk, uh, Detroit Piston, Los Angeles Clipper, Josh Smith, who was out of the league early, but uh, similar game. And uh, so I'll, we'll be digging into some of these guys. Yeah, a little bit. I, I got a little bit of Josh, Josh Smith education this morning. Um, yeah. Somebody maybe I thought I knew better than I did. But yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold off before I drop my comps, but they'll definitely come on that next Kings Bulls. Sweet. Sweet. Okay, and and then we are switching heavily to, we're we still have to cover the coaching search. Um, we are going to do player reviews uh, at least one a week here, um, specifically with the big players on the Kings that either a have a chance to be here or uh, b have been here for a long time, and we're going to cover them either way, whether they're going to be here or not. Um, and that's probably that. I mean, that is where we're going today. We're going to have a long dis uh, discussion on Demontis Sabonis and. Uh, Brennan, uh, you know, before we get into the DeMontis Sabonis situation, um, we have another former uh, Sacramento Kings center situation that I think we want to touch on, but, like, I don't want to dig. I say I don't want to dig deep, and then every time I, I say something like that, I turn around and I'm watching the clock, and we're, like, 18 minutes into a discussion. Um, but uh, DeMarcus Cousins... Um, he had a an interview with Mark Spears. Uh, Mark Spears is a good friend, and he's for I mean he's been on the podcast many times in the past. Um, whether I can get him on the podcast now or not is usually an ESPN thing. Uh, there's like this weird layers of approval to get somebody on a podcast, um, but I'll try to get Mark on here to discuss some of this. And we are going to do more interviews, um, especially now that we're in the off season. Um, but uh, Demarcus Cousins took some shots at the Kings and some of it I think is warranted. Um, some of it I think is revisionist. And, uh, and then we had, of course, George Carl chime in because why not? Why not George jump on in there? H have at it, George. <laughs> Good old George. Uh, I'm sure we're going to get a snake in the grass emoji uh, any moment here from DeMarcus cousins. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the article was focused around Boogie still having a lot of game left, and it kind of just transitioned into talking about Sacramento. Almost read as if, like, Boogie was the one that led it there. And Wait, wait, we have to do this. We're just going to call this Tuesday Overreactions. DeMarcus Cousins on the Sacramento Kings. Go oh, ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so the quote that, stand out, that stands out, Mark asks, if you could go back and change anything, what would you change that might have changed how you're perceived now? Is there anything where you're like, man, I should have just blank? And Boogie says, I would have skipped my draft workout in Sacramento. Mark asks, why is that? He's, Boogie responds with, what did Sac do for me? Besides say my name, I did more for them than they did for me. That's just being honest, just being 100% honest. I had two owners, three GMs, seven coaches in seven years. I was there seven years. I had three GMs, two owners, and seven coaches. Not much more needs to be said. 
What's your reaction when you see this going on, James? You covered Boogie for a lot of years. Um, my reaction. Um, okay, the 2000 was a 2010 NBA draft. Uh, John Wall, Evan Turner, Derek Favors, Wesley Johnson, Demarcus Cousins. Demarcus Cousins, the best talent in that draft. Um, I think pretty much by far the best talent in in that draft. Um, but he fell to number five and he fell to number five for a reason. And, um, like, look, I I came into the league with DeMarcus like that. My first year covering this team full-time was 2010, 11. That was DeMarcus cousins rookie year. Um, I remember sitting down with him for my first interview and my first interview with him, um, was a bit scary because I really hadn't done this before. And he's like, like a PhD level interview. He's tough to get stuff out of. And then every once in a while you get him to open up and, and like really have a good conversation with you. Uh, I thought that that was pretty solid uh, conversation. I asked him at the end, like someone had given me like his projected two K stats, which was like 14.5 points, eight rebounds, uh, two assists, a block. Um, And I said, is that fair? And he said, yeah, uh, maybe. That's literally almost exactly, 2K predicted exactly what he would do in his rookie season. Um, I asked him where he was going to be in in five years, and he said best big man in the league. Uh, I asked him where he was going to be in 10 years. He said multi-time all-star. I asked him, are you going to be in the Hall of Fame? And he said, that's the plan. Um, DeMarcus Cousins does say in that in that piece that he believes he's a Hall of Famer. And he believes he's a Hall of Famer because Vladi Divac is in the Hall of Fame, which is a jab at Vladi. Um, unfortunately. Pretty funny, I got to say. Yeah, it was I funny. I understand the flaw logic, but it's pretty funny. Yeah, except for, you know, Vladi Divac helped lead uh, an incredible Yugoslavian team to, like, Olympic fame. Um, and, and all kinds of international play. And Vlade's in on the international ticket. Vlade would have, would not have made it on just the U.S. ticket. He was a a very good player, but in an era of the greatest centers in the game. Um, you know, like, I, it's hard to think of Vlade as more than, like, probably the 10th, maybe even lower than that, best center in the league of his era, because he's in an era with... You know, Shaq, David Robinson, Hakeem, um, Patrick Ewing, Alonzo Mourning, Dikembe Mutombo. Like, every team had a great center. And uh, so, anyway, um, I I don't think DeMarcus makes a Hall of Fame. And I I think that, actually, I don't think he has a chance at all. And that's not because I dislike DeMarcus Cousins. It's just his career path, that's the way it's gone. Um, He had a moment where he was a three-time All-Star, and he was really, really good. Um, and his teams won 31, 32, 33 games. Um, he's gone on to play for multiple teams, um, which is because of injuries, but also because of, you know, personality. Uh, and, you know, we saw it again after this article came out um, in the Warriors-Nuggets game last night. He got into it on the bench with Will Barton and had, like, a full-fledged, like, there was some unhappy conversations like going on and uh like look i i like demarcus like i covered him for a long time it was a gradual change that 
covering him. I watched him grow um, and, and, you know, grow up in the NBA, but also grow from like a 19-year-old kid to like a 24-year-old before, 25-year-old before he got traded. Um, he's right to a certain degree that the Kings were a mess. Um, his rookie season, the Maloofs tried to relocate the team to Anaheim. His third season in the league, the Kings tried to relocate the team to Seattle. Ownership was void of, like, they didn't step up at all and have conversations. Um, the GM didn't step up and, and take ownership of the relocation saga, and that left people like Paul Westfall and people like DeMarcus Cousins to ask to answer really difficult questions about relocation and about where they wanted the team to play and stuff like that. So none of that was fair. Um, the instability was chaotic. Uh, the ownership change was chaotic. He played for six coaches, not seven, but he did play for three GMs and two owners. And uh, even like the the era of uh, Vivek buying the team, just complete chaos. So some of that is true, but I'll also tell you this. DeMarcus Cousins, for as much chaos as there was, was like he was a match for the chaos that the Kings provided. He provided his own chaos. And I think what we had here was a perfect marriage of a team without structure and a player that desperately needed structure. And uh, the only time they did get structure that worked for him, um, somebody made an idiot move and fired Michael Malone. And that was the only time that... DeMarcus started to get on the right path. And I think that's why we're seeing this conversation now because he's back with Michael Malone. But I'll tell you this, Michael Malone was very clear and said that, yeah, him and DeMarcus had a great relationship and he was able to sort of rein in some of the things that DeMarcus did. But that also didn't mean that he didn't have his foot up DeMarcus Cousins' ass every single day, which he did. Like that, it wasn't easy. And DeMarcus wasn't easy to cover. He wasn't easy to be around sometimes. Um, that doesn't mean that I didn't, like, learn to appreciate him and not, and also that I didn't marvel at his, his game was incredible. So, so Brendan, that's, you know, what do you got? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're the one with the, uh, with the perspective here. I, I mean, I think that anytime I've heard a story about Boogie, it's, you know, you far and away the best player on this team and they could have done so much more for him but there's always the final point of he didn't he wasn't exactly making it easy on his teammates if anything there's a handful of situations where he made life a lot more difficult for them and wasn't exactly your picture-perfect leader um, <laughs> I guess to put it kindly from things I've heard again yeah. not watching the team so closely at that time and um, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, I can't help, I will say, like, when I see the seven coaches, or if it's six in, in seven years, like, think about De'Aaron a little bit. It's not to the same extent, but it's like, man, that was happening with Bookie, and the same thing's going on right now. De'Aaron's about to go on to his fourth coach in his sixth season. Like, it, yeah. I, I know we've said it nonstop, but, like, turnover's got to stop at some point. Yeah. Um, that's that's always going to be the problem. Um, and... Like, look, at, let's see, it's it's Westfall, Smart, Malone, Corbin, Carl, and then he was traded under the Jaeger regime, so six. Um, yeah, there was plenty. I mean, like, we could go through, a, like, a DeMarcus Cousins expose podcast. Uh, like, there were 
um, fights behind the scenes, multiple fights. Uh, there were there was a situation where he was choked out by an assistant coach um, on the court during a practice. Um, choked out. Holy. There, well, uh, yeah. I mean, there. I don't know if it was all the way out, but certainly, like there yeah. was an there was an incident. Um, there were situations with media members, which are well documented, and, and I saw every single one of those. Um, you know, there there are situations with um, young players that didn't go well. Um, I think the one guy that thrived during the Demarcus Cousins era was Isaiah Thomas, who literally just doesn't give an f and isn't going to buy in or or have anybody tell him one thing or another. Uh, the George Carl situation, I understand why George Carl's chiming in. Um, George Carl, uh, in any other situation pre-Sacramento, probably earned the right to say something. And props to George Carl for being in the Hall of Fame. But George Carl was a mess in Sacramento, and that's it is what it is. I mean, he was a total mess. And I would like to tell you that like things could have been different. I don't think so. I mean, he literally walked in the door and started making phone calls to try to trade DeMarcus Cousins. Like, before really even meeting him, he tried to trade him even though he wasn't the general manager. And, uh, like he made phone calls around the league and that's where we got this smit the snake in the grass emoji. And, uh, yeah, there's, there's just so much to it. Uh, I, I would like to tell you it's as simple as what DeMarcus said, that it's all on Kings and, and all that stuff. And, and a good percentage of it is, but there's also a huge percentage that goes on him. And I don't know if it's a 50, 50 split, but it's certainly it's it's closer to that than it is like a ninety ten King's fault, his fault. Yeah. And you know, the Kings finally for the first time, I believe the first time since Demarcus has left, have another post up big man that they can kind of play through. I don't know that they did a great job of playing through the post with Devonta Sabonis and oh, look at you segue. You like that? Yeah, he, you like I that? like that. Hang on, before we segue, I want to finish one thing on Cousins. I talked about this on the radio, and we're, I, I'm going to let you reset that segue because that was a brilliant segue. Um, there was, uh, yeah, just everything around him was chaotic all the time, right? And so so we learned a lot about you know him and about you know just like how people dealt with him. But when we got to the moment where he gets traded, there is Vlade gets caught saying like, what really goes down as like something that I'm sure it's on a t-shirt somewhere. We had a better deal two days ago. Right. And okay. So first of all, Vladi tried to be funny all the time and I thought he was really funny and he's quick witted. There is some language barrier stuff that you have to deal with on occasion where, uh, you know, just like, but either way, he was trying to be funny and it backfired, just like he tried to be funny and asked us how he did when he drafted Willie Cauley Stein, and Sean literally told him not not good, <laughs> like you did not do good. He's like, "What do you mean?" He's like, "You should not have drafted Willie Cauley Stein. <laughs> you should have drafted Emmanuel Mudiay, or you should have drafted uh, Miles Turner." Um, Sean was very clear and upfront with him, um, but uh, specifically with Cousins. I want to make sure people understand the context of that because I, I discussed this on the radio yesterday with D'Lo and Casey, my guys on ESPN 1320. And uh, I made sure that people understood. Like, what he meant was, okay, he had a trade worked out with the Pelicans on Friday. Um, 
and then DeMarcus gets traded on Sunday. Between Friday and Sunday, a bunch of stuff happened. So the deal was going to be DeMarcus Cousins for Buddy Heald, who was the number six pick in the draft that year uh, in the 2016 NBA draft. And then two first-round picks from the Pelicans, uh, one which ended up being uh, the 10th pick in the 2017 NBA draft because the Pelicans did not just, like, excel and go make the playoffs. They didn't make the playoffs, and the Kings got their pick. But the other pick was supposed to be a future first-round pick and when the Kings went to Cousins' agent and told him that they were going to trade Cousins to the Pelicans, um, his agent freaked out and said, no, you're not, and uh, made a huge issue of it because the Kings had promised Cousins a 200, I think it was $220 million extension, right? Well, he didn't get that extension. And they wanted that extension, and they did not want the Pelicans. They threatened the Pelicans to not re-sign and also like if you have other players that are under contract that we have with you we're going to start making problems for you and so the deal that Vlade had for Buddy Heald two first round picks it became Buddy Heald one first round pick and a second round pick and so yes he had a better deal but the reason why was because the Pelicans got all this backlash and we're like, well, look, we're not doing a, a six month rental. And then one season of DeMarcus cousins, we're not giving up all this stuff for that. And so the deal got less because his agent like basically said, you're not trading for him. So, so I think that, I mean, there's some context to why Vlade said he had a better deal two days ago. Uh, and the deal got worse as time went on. Because, very specifically, because there was becoming an issue behind the scenes. And, go ahead. And, well, I, you know, now understand, like, players or coaches or general managers just joking around to media a little bit. And, like, there were times yeah. with Alvin Gentry this year. Alvin Gentry's joking around all the time where it's like, if you take that seriously and, and just are reading a quote out of context that you don't understand. Yeah, it's the... We have a super team. They're just young. You know, that it was said as a joke. It wasn't like, I mean, maybe that one was slightly more serious. Um, but even in one of those press conferences, uh, like right around that time, Vlade said something off the cuff to Marshall Harris, who was in the back of the room. And it was hilarious. And if it was tweeted out, it would have totally came across as the wrong way. And that's not what the intent was. Like, you always have to look at the intent, and we live in a world where everything gets aggregated and crazy. Like, I saw someone said that I wrote that the if Quinn Snyder becomes available, the Kings are going to be all—like, that's their number one guy. Um, Yeah, they would love to get Quinn Snyder, like, I believe. Like, who wouldn't want to get Quinn Snyder? But that's really not what I said. I said that he was an option. If he becomes available, the Kings should kick the tires on him, not that he becomes the automatic, like— de facto like they're they've got to go full steam on Quinn Snyder they should but that's not what I was saying um anyway so there is that LeBron James becomes available yeah Kings might want to think about it exactly okay so we spent more time on Tuesday overreactions than I intended which is exactly what I feared would happen Um, but again I like to provide context and historical context when it comes to some of these situations 
And I wish DeMarcus Cousins all the best, and I hope that he goes on to um, to do good things and all that stuff. I'll, I'll just, but at the same time, you know, what do you put up 17 and 11 and like five assists and two steals and two blocks uh, one night this season with the Bucks, and they caught him that day. Like it's not, it's never going to be about talent. It's never going to be about like his ability, which I think is remarkable. And I also, he, he, the one other thing we'll finish up with this, he mentioned um, something in there about him being the godfather of the modern day center. And I have to like, in all honesty, I agree with DeMarcus. He is the godfather of the modern day center. And uh, people are like, what are you talking about? The league had this void. They went from like all of these great centers, and then it was Dwight Howard and no one else. And everyone else in the league's like, well, what do we do against Dwight Howard? Dwight Howard is going to make the Hall of Fame because there was no other good centers. And then all of a sudden, DeMarcus came in the league, and he could shoot the three, he could pass, he could run the floor with the ball, he could dribble like a guard. He could do all of these things. And that's why I will tell you, like, watching him play on a nightly basis, he is so incredibly gifted. It's not even funny. He's just absolutely amazingly gifted. And what we've seen since then is a revolution in the center position. It, Like, I once asked Chris Gent, hey, DeMarcus Cousins versus Hakeem Olajuwon. And he laughed. He goes, man, Hakeem could put the ball on the floor maybe twice like two dribbles. And if he got past two dribbles, he was in trouble. He's like, we got this guy doing spin moves at half court, dodging guards that are running at him and going coast to coast. Like that's just not something that ever happened. And now we see Anthony Davis and we see Carl Anthony Towns and we see Joel Embiid and we see all of these players. Um, I will say Jokic is more like uh, like an old school European big, like DeMontis, uh, I mean, uh, uh Arvidas Sabonis or or Vladi, he's just the really great version of that. Um, but a lot of these other centers, all you see is like what DeMarcus Cousins was. And I would say maybe you even see that Jokic is a hybrid between like the old school 2010, you know, even guys like Jonas Valanciunas center and Embiid. We're seeing like the crossover so again, I think Cousins, you can trace a lot of this back to the lineage of Cousins and what he brought to the league when he did. By far the most incredible, like, dribbling, passing, shooting, big man at his time. And you even look at Greg Monroe, how good Greg Monroe was as a passer who came into the same draft, right? Um, well, Monroe never developed all those other skills. He didn't have those other skills coming into the league to be the the ball handler and all that stuff. And that's why his game sort of petered off and just became like a passing big as opposed to what Cousins was. And, uh, I mean, uh, Greg Monroe could score in the post too. Uh, Greg Monroe is actually a really interesting case of, you know, what happened, why, why a player never stuck and why he bounces around the league still and gets 10 day contracts, even though everywhere he goes, he puts up incredible advanced statistics. Um, anyway, uh, again, I just kept going on the DeMarcus Cousins situation uh, go ahead and work that segue into how DeMarcus Cousins uh, made DeMontis Sabonis. <laughs> made Sabonis. <laughs> Boogie did say that he thinks he's the best player to ever come through Sacramento. And Wrong. Like, before, okay, got to give me some names a little bit now. 
Well, Mitch Richmond and Chris okay. Webber are both in the Hall of Fame. Okay. And, yeah. and I mean, again, he's he's an outstanding player. But the best ever? Yeah. Yeah. No. Fair enough. I mean, Fair enough. Um, and, you know, Sabonis is a guy that I think people actually enjoy playing with and playing off of. I, I think Sabonis does a really good job of making his teammates better. And yeah. on the floor, I, I think that what I've heard is that he's a great leader off of the floor, and you saw some of that leaking out in those 15 games he played with the Kings. Um, and it seems like he's he's really planning on working with the guys that are going to be around next season throughout the course of this off season. So I, I think it'll be interesting to kind of see how this team moves forward with Demonis Sabonis as the, as the focal point now, along with De'Aaron Fox, obviously. He He's such an, a different player, right? He's different than anything that they've had since Vlade, most likely. Um, Vlade, well, yeah, Brad Miller. Brad Miller had a lot of similar skills as well. Um, I think Sabonis is a better player, um, but like I, I think the player comp of those guys is, is intriguing. Uh, Miller was probably a better pure shooter, um, and uh, I, I think when it comes to Sabonis, he's probably a, a better all-around passer, better scorer, especially in the paint. Um, I don't know, but uh, we've dug deep into Domantas Sabonis, and why don't you start with like how you, how do you think he fits with Fox? Like how how is this thing gonna work out? Yeah, um, you know I don't think that they have a great fit, at least on paper. Like just your two primary guys being players that don't shoot very much. You know I, I think that's just the basic issue here. And if you surround them with three shooters, I think it can work well. And I was surprised, like we said when we dove into De'Aaron on the last episode that it did click so fast because both of these guys like there's an aspect of De'Aaron Fox has never played with a guy that can post up and run you can run offense through on the elbow like DeMontis Sabonis he's never played with a guy that can screen like DeMontis Sabonis and he sure never had to play off anybody that's doing that is a capable post-up player and efficient in that manner I think that that latter point is something that we really are going to see more progress with going into the Kings next year. I don't know that it's like a focal point of their offense or anything, but I thought there were just so clear uncomfortableness going on when um, they were trying to post up DeMontis Sabonis, and we didn't see it all that often this season. So I think that like looking at their skill sets, it it doesn't seem like a great fit, but it, it worked a lot better than I thought. You know, I, I think that that two-man game of the little nuances of them both being left-handed, they're both just extremely smart basketball players and good decision makers with the ball in their hands or out of it. And their two-man game, I think, clicked right away. It's, to me, a lot more of how does this work when Sabonis is the one initiating rather than De'Aaron Fox. And that's where I think there's still some growth that needs to come. But where are you at with that duo and what we saw in their 15 games? Yeah, I think the one thing I'll say is that uh, when I looked at the numbers, I was surprised by some of the numbers. And I think basically what we got was a scaled-down version of what we could see, right? So we didn't get to see the whole package because there's no way to install all of these offensive sets on the fly. Just what Alvin Gentry was able to do, like the minimum that he was able to do, where we started seeing, like, the again, the, um, the two-man game at the elbow, uh, the two-man game on the left side, 
um, like a lot of those things I, I thought were, we started to see wrinkles that were, were crazy. Uh, some of the stats I looked at, like, um, during his time with the Kings, uh, 91.6% of Sabonis's shots came from two point range versus 81% during his time with the Pacers and this season. So that means that you're only looking at like 8.4% from three and Sabonis didn't shoot well from three at all. 23.5% with the Kings, but 19% with the Pacers of his shots came from three and he shot 32.1%. We never got to like the next level of what we were going to start seeing as they started to drag the offense further from the basket because they ran out of time. Uh, Fox got injured. Sabonis got injured. And they didn't bring them back in the final, you know, 15 games of the season, whatever it was. Um, but in order to preserve them, um, some of the other things like um, most of his shots, like realistically came, you know, within six feet uh, with the Kings. And I, I did something interesting. So uh, with the Kings, let's see, 71.6%, uh, 71.9% uh, 71 at uh, inside of six feet. That's what his field goal percentage was. Less than 10 feet, he was at 58.4. Uh, Two-point range, 58.7%. Three-point range, um, oh, that's overall. Um, season, like his, his three-point shooting was not good with the Kings. Um, but it, it seemed to me that uh, there are spots on the floor that he has to develop, and that doesn't mean that it has to be a three. So I think that Again, I went back and looked at what I think one of the comps was because we saw a lot of what the Kings used to do, sort of the the Princeton style, or they would run, you know, at certain points they'd run like it's horns or double horns. They do a bunch of things right at the, the elbow. Um, and so I went back and looked and thought, okay, the player that I remember being so good at this was Chris Weber, right, where he ran an entire offense through that elbow. And I thought what made Weber really good was that he could shoot. Um, he shot a, a decent high clip, I thought, uh, from that area as well. I go back and look at the numbers. He did not. He was not a good shooter from the elbow. And actually, Sabonis is probably even substantially better than him from that position. But he doesn't shoot it enough. And I think that that's going to be where we have to get Sabonis shooting more and more of those shots um, just to draw the defense out a little bit and keep them honest so he can have more spacing back behind him, um, like between him and the basket. He needs better spacing there so he can make passes to other players outside of Fox. Um, and, and again, I, I think like anyone who's going to take this coaching job, like show me how you're going to use Sabonis and Fox together show me the players that you're going to use around them and how you're going to use them uh, and, and make, you know, make this whole thing work. Because I was, I was slightly surprised by some of the numbers. Like, uh, you know, like we can go through, I'm sure. What did you, did you look up like pre-Sabonis and post-Sabonis, like, like pace and an offensive rating and all those things? I did. Um, you know, a lot of, I mean, the, the main thing that stood out to me, I think, as expected was Sabonis, a guy who ends third in rebounds per game in the whole NBA with 12.1 a game, is is that um, the team was just so much better rebounding with him out there. Like, I think Alvin pointed it out, Alvin Gentry, it's a huge part of ending defensive possessions. Um, 
And without Sabonis on the floor, they're securing 68.5% of potential defensive rebounds. With him on the floor, they're securing 80%. Um, just a ginormous jump. And again, Sabonis is third in the entire NBA in rebounds per game, an aspect where Sacramento was dead last last season. They still end up finishing the season 26th in the entire league. Um, but Sabonis is, I mean, just because the other guys around him, unless this changes this offseason, aren't exactly, like he doesn't have a great rebounding four alongside him or anything, I think those rebounding numbers could even go up a little bit more. Um, I mean, I think that primarily, like, that's the one thing that stood out to me of there's a lot of weaknesses on the team that it's easy to point at just it being bigger than Sabonis or bigger than De'Aaron and Sabonis, but the rebounding was the one aspect to me where it's like, I don't know that we had a game since Sabonis was playing that it's like, man, the Kings are getting killed on the boards today. There was maybe one, um, and that is something that is totally chalked up to him. I think the one game they got killed was the one game they couldn't shoot at all. They shot like 32% from the field, and when you do that, you're going to get rolled. Um, and your defensive numbers, your your rebounding numbers are going to be totally skewed. Um, yeah, so defensive rebounding. I, I looked up uh, pre-Sabonis, the Kings were 26th in the league at uh, 70.8%. Post-Sabonis, they were at 75.2%, fifth in the league in defensive rebounding. And I think the, I mean, it's weird because their offensive rebounding numbers took a big dip without uh, Sabonis, from what I can tell, like as a team. In, in the 15 games that he played. Um, but I also, like, it's not just that he's a, an exceptional rebounder. It's that he clears space for other people to go get rebounds as well, and he makes you better as a team. He's a, a really, really good team rebounder. And if you had a better rebounder at a couple of positions around him, he would have been even better. And I I'll even say this. If he would have played more with DiVincenzo, I think we would have seen the Kings' numbers go up even higher because DiVincenzo is a true crasher of the glass, and Sabonis clears so much space for others to go crash that I think that you would have seen an uptick there as well. They just didn't play that many minutes together. They didn't, and I mean, there's just a lot of growing pains in a way and just getting used to all these new teammates like Sabonis talked about it a lot in his exit interviews there's six new guys you know that came in at the deadline maybe only four of them are actually like getting consistent minutes but there were six new guys that came in it's a lot of turnover there's a there's a coaching change in the middle of the season that happens before Sabonis gets there but still it causes change like um, the quote that I have from Sabonis is exit interview about that is Quote, we didn't have much time to practice and get together and know all the sets, defensive schemes, and everything. It still takes time to play off one another. We had six new players out there playing with everybody, so that's why I'm excited for the summer. We're going to get together as a group and try to build on things early before training camp even starts, and I think that's going to help us a lot. The more we can play with one another, the more we get a feel of each other. We have a lot of time out there. Everybody has that fire and passion and wants to play, so that's half the job. We just got to make it work together now. End quote. And... You know, I think Sabonis is a player that even more so it fits with. You have to get used to playing with because he's a bit of a unique style. There's a couple other players that maybe can mock what he does a little bit and fit that prototype. But for the most part, I think there very much so is an aspect of learning how to play with Sabonis 
and also being such a cerebral pre- passer like DeMontis is, understanding when teammates are going to cut and how quick they're going to cut so they can hit them in the right spots. And I, I think that we're going to see a lot of growth. And you mentioned the pace a little bit, like the Kings finished ninth this season. Sabonis was on one of the lowest paced offenses in the entire league prior to this. So I, I think that that's going to be a big adjustment for him as well. And partially where the whole rebounding and taking it himself really um, can help in that aspect. Okay. So pace, you, you brought up pace. Um, the Kings without Sabonis, 99.8 with Sabonis, 101.6. Um, it's, it's the eighth highest pa- uh, pace. And um, they were eighth in pace in the first up until February 8th. And they were sixth in pace down the stretch. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and to me, like that's per NBA.com, uh, that their stats. And so, like you saw where he could play with pace. I, I looked at some interesting numbers too. So we always focus on the Fox and and uh, DeMontis pairing. And Fox didn't actually finish that well with, with Sabonis. But 1.2 uh, of... Of Sabonis's assists went to Fox, right? Uh, which I thought was probably a little lower than I thought. And of those, um, Fox shot 36.4% from three, which on 1.5 attempts, which I thought is pretty good. So of the assists that Fox got from Sabonis, he literally shot 36.4%. This is the one that stuck out. The second leading assist assisted player from Sabonis during um, the 15 games they played, it was Holiday. And Holiday... Holiday made shots? He was so <laughs> bad at the three. What did what did he shoot from three in his time with the Kings? I, I didn't look it up. I, it's not good. I think he got close to 30% by the end of the season, but that was skewed by a couple of like oddball games late. Um, it wasn't good, right? It, it definitely was not good. He ended with 34%. I honestly would have thought it was worse. With the Kings? Yeah. Yeah, that's because he hit all those threes in like the final two games of the season. Yeah. He had okay, a couple so, games where he was he was hitting them. So here was the crazy thing that I saw. During their time together in Sacramento, uh, Justin Holiday accounted for 1.2 assists per game from Sabonis. He shot 38% from on three-pointers from Sabonis on 2.8 attempts per game. To me, that was stunning because it felt like Justin Holiday missed like 87% of every three point he took during his time with the Kings. At least, yeah. I, I know that <laughs> Holiday is the, least. Guy, is the guy that Sabonis had assisted most coming into the season as well. Mm-hmm. They have a really good chemistry between them. I want to say it was around 40, 40% even of Sabonis' assists were, were to Holiday. They have a nice little two-man game chemistry between them, almost like Duncan Robinson, Bam Adebayo-esque sometimes. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, I guess that makes sense. That certainly wouldn't have been my guess, but that, it's interesting. I, I think it's a, another aspect of, like, Sabonis making role players better. And and there's just a familiarity between those two that there I think was lacking on most of the roster when, again, they bring in six new guys um, at the trade deadline. So, interesting for sure um do you have other aspects of or okay i have assist per game right 
we could go yep. through Sabonis' whole stat line real quick, actually. Yeah, let's go. We've done this, yes. We've done this yet. So during his time with Sacramento, 18.9 points. By the way, the exact number of points that he averaged during the time that he played with Indiana as well. And this is 15 games with Sacramento. Again, 18.9 points, 12.3 rebounds, 5.8 assists on 55% from the field, 23% from three on 1.1 three-point attempts per game, and 74% from the free throw line on 4.9 free throw attempts per game. Fourth most assists per game of any player taller than 6'10". NBA.com has Sabonis listed at 6'11". 5.2 assists. Can you guess the other three? One of them's easy. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, that one, that's pretty simple. Uh, Jokic. Mm-hmm. Um, you said 5.2. Um, Embiid? No. It's actually guys that probably you wouldn't call bigs, but oh, they're still okay. Giannis? very tall. Yes. Okay. And then over 6'10". I might not be able to get the last one. KD. Oh, okay. But KD played like 14 games. I mean, not 14, but I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm exaggerating. But he, he barely played. But, yeah. yeah, I mean, obviously Jokic is, is the outlier. Those other guys are more wings rather than bigs is, is what I would label them. Um, so I, I think just speaking to the point that, like, obviously we know Sabonis is a good passer, but it's backed up just how extremely impressive that he is in that aspect and that you really are able to run an offense through him. Yeah, I mean, I, I, whoever takes this job needs to be able to show everybody how they're going to use Sabonis in the, the correct way. They need to show that they can run an offense through a big man like him. And, I mean, I, I guess you could say that Giannis is is a guy, I mean, he's just so unique. Um, you know, he he's a guy who plays a lot inside the three-point line. I think Jokic is, is again, if you can get someone who can help unlock Sabonis as a passer fully the way that Jokic uh, has been unlocked in, in Denver. I think that that would be huge. Um, but in, in order to average, you know, eight assists a game, you have to actually have shooters around you that can actually hit shots. And I think that that was probably like both in Indiana and in Sacramento. I think that that was probably the biggest issue is that if you're going to have, um, if you're going to have Sabonis on your team, and especially Sabonis and Fox, you need six legitimate shooters. And I think that that was the one interesting, like Harrison Barnes, 1.1 assists from Sabonis on the year. On the year. He shot 50% from three on 1.2 attempts per game. The thing that stands out is 1.2 attempts per game. Like why is Sabonis not hitting Harrison Barnes for like literally like four four assist uh, opportunities per game per game and that's just not something that we saw uh the attempts has to get up and so I, I really do think that they're we're just seeing again like the beginning of what this can be and I, I think what we do know is it can be something totally different than what we saw from Sabonis in Indiana and something totally different for Fox and what we saw with him without Sabonis here in Sacramento and that's a good thing I think that there's all kinds of potential for this thing to develop into like one of the higher octane offenses in the league run through two big men uh, I would through uh, two men uh like a two-man game that they could really be like extremely good like I, I tried to watch I mean I, I did watch a bunch of the Utah um, Dallas. oh Dallas yeah yeah 
And the two-man game between Donovan Mitchell and and Rudy Gobert, like half the time it doesn't work because Gobert is just not good offensively. And I, I think when you invert that and you have the big being the passer and the guard being the finisher, you have potential for this thing to be really, really intriguing to watch. And that's where I like kind of throw some of these comps out because I even look at um, the Denver Nuggets and they don't have anyone that's even remotely similar to De'Aaron Fox. They have a bunch of shooters. And when they do get, I guess, you know, you got a bunch of shooters and you got Aaron Gordon, who's a non-shooter. But then, you know, if you bring back Jamal Murray and you do get Michael Porter Jr., then you have, you know, more shooting and, and Porter can at least do some things. But still, it, there's not someone who I think the only combo that looks even remotely similar would be Embiid and Tyrese Maxey. And even that's not maximized because Embiid is a 30 point per game guy trying to score for himself more often. And they have a lot of other options as well. Yeah, it's definitely hard to draw comparisons. And I, I do think the post ups are, are going to be a big transition. Like, I think Savonis has shown that he's a pretty efficient post up player. And I think that De'Aaron Fox hasn't needed to or had many opportunities to, like, function as a cutter. And I think that's an area of his game that we could see some growth in. And I think that's part of the, you know, Sabonis was averaging 5.5 free throws in Indiana. That went to 4.9 with Sacramento. There were some times where he just felt like he was hardly getting there. And I think typically he – I think we'll see that number jump a little bit more next season, um, especially, like – like I said, getting a few more post-up opportunities or in transition, um, attacking the basket hard and, and getting to the line because that's an area where Sabonis does exceed as well. Um, I was impressed with him on the defensive end. I got to say, I know the numbers don't look great. It's hard <laughs> for numbers to look good, defensive numbers to look good when you're a member of the Sacramento Kings, I got to say. But yeah, before you hit me with the numbers, James... I thought that while he doesn't get many blocks, in fact, 0.3 blocks per game in his time with Sacramento, um, five in the 15 games that he played. He had five? Five. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I thought that he did a decent job of being in the right position. I don't, there wasn't many times where I'm like, man, he's just a liability out there, which I know isn't a high bar, but I think previous Sacramento centers maybe have that have me at that point um I I think he did an okay job of being a deterrent even if he's not a natural rim protector I know the numbers don't say that though yeah okay so I want to finish with one thing on the offensive end and and then I'll give you numbers on that um less than 10 feet with the pacer I'm less than six feet uh with the pacers Sabonis shot 58.4 percent uh the same area with the Kings in those 15 games, he shot 71.9%. Um, I think that that's what shows you how much easier life is with Fox and him. It's that when he is in that position, he has an, a much easier time to score like at the rim because there's other people drawing attention away within the area as opposed to just threes. Um, okay, yeah, so the numbers, the defensive numbers. The eye test and the numbers they don't match up. So I thought when I watched Sabonis play like so much better than I thought he would be as a defender, so much better. 
and I, I think everything across the board. When he came from uh, Indiana, some of the things we heard about him, um, you know, oh, hang on. Let me let me scratch that because I think the the number I just read you was defensive stats. That's what that is. That's what those are. Those are defensive stats. Yes. Less than six feet when he was with the Pacers, 58.4%. With the Kings, 71.9%. He allowed people to shoot. Less than 10 feet, 62.9%. With the Pacers, he was a little bit better at 58.4%. With the Kings, two-point percentage overall. 52% as a member of the Pacers, he allowed his opponent to shoot. 58.7 with the Kings. Um, Three-point line was uh, a little bit worse. Um, But overall, uh, like the numbers were startling. Um, Overall, he allowed opponents to shoot uh, like 46.9% with the Pacers and 53.8% with the Kings. And I think that's because a team shot a lot more threes uh, against the Pacers because they had Miles Turner like roaming the paint um, and an elite shot blocker. So against the Kings, they went inside more. Um, But uh, the... I'm just going to say this like straight up. The Kings were are are just the worst defensive team like historically over the last like 3 years. I mean, if you add them all up, there might be one team that's remotely close to them, but they are so bad defensively, it's not even funny. And I thought the Kings got much better with him on the court. Uh but that doesn't mean that they were good and I think it also shows you that you have to have a shot blocker with him and you have to find that guy. So that should be like, how do you find a shot blocking three or a shot blocking four to put alongside him? And uh, that, that to me, it's going to be the difference between Sabonis being a strong anchor on the defensive side and us looking at similar stats next year. Can this team get better as a defensive unit? I don't know. The only way you can do it is by having a better fit. Not even, it doesn't have to be someone who's just so much better defensively. That would help, but it definitely has to be a better fit as a defender next to him than what we saw in the final, you know, 15 games with him. And it's complicated. He's a complicated fit defensively. You know, like, while I, like I said, I thought he was a good deterrent at the rim rather than a natural rim protector. I think he's better, like, in rotations rather than directly involved in the pick and roll. I think he's okay there, like, getting rid of the pocket pass, which is fitting for somebody that's a good passer that he, like, makes sure to do that on the defensive end. But, like, talked about this a little bit with, with Brian on the King's Pulse pod talking about uh, Chet, Holm- Chet Holmgren, where that guy's an elite defender in the pick and roll. Chet Holmgren if if you draft him you have to have him being the one in my mind that's guarding the pick and roll as the big but then Sabonis is on the perimeter and I don't know that that's the most ideal way to use Sabonis and this is where it's it's I, I think the best way to function is you try to get a four and again this is asking for a very specific archetype that's probably difficult to get but Sabonis ideally is still the one engaged in the pick and roll. And then you have a four who's a weak side rim protector, like a better, much, much better version of Mo Harkless, for example. And maybe a Jeremy Grant, I think, like fits this mold. Um, because if, again, like Chad Holmgren or, or sometimes Miles Turner kind of fits this, 
Uh, if you get a big where they need to be the one engaged defensively in the pick and roll, what does that mean for, for DeMontis? He's not bad defending the three. I mean, he, if for a big man, he, he allowed opponents to shoot right around 33.3% from the field. 32 with uh, with Indiana. I, I think he's okay, um, but I think the key is that you have to figure out how they would mesh. And I don't think again, I don't think Sabonis is bad in the pick and roll. Where Sabonis I think gets in trouble is when he's a help defender and his man's beat off the and and Fox or or name that Kings guard that gets beat off the dribble because all of them get beat off the dribble all the time. Um, you know, like if you can stop like the the just wide open lane, then that's where Sabonis really does struggle. Like as a position defender. I think he's very good. He doesn't get pushed. He doesn't. He he gives people uh, like shots, like in the ribs. Like he he's a tough guy. Um, I don't think even laterally he's that bad. I think that there there are just times where he doesn't have an elite wingspan. So if guys are running at the rim, if you if you get him caught in that situation, then you probably have an issue, and that shouldn't be the case. But it seems like the the Kings always have like an open door to the basket. And so like the rotations are bad. Um, I mean, in all honesty, they need a better defensive scheme. And I don't know if they need a better defensive coordinator. They just keep going through those guys. Like, you know, like people go through toilet paper. I think they're on their fourth defensive coordinator in four years, but they need a truly good defensive genius to, to help solidify some of this stuff. And, like I've said this before, they need a guy like Fox uh, and, and even a guy like Davion. We all think that Davion is this mystical defender. Well, Davion can still use help, especially in uh, in off-ball situations. They need these guys working with Doug, like nonstop. Like understanding the, it's not just the how, it's the why. And, and I think that that's something that so many of these players, like they're not getting. Like I remember talking to Willie Cauley-Stein and it was like going from his rookie season to his second season, like what was different? He's like, well, they would tell me to go run over there, that my play calls for me to run over there, and I would keep running over there. And then he's like, it wasn't until like halfway through the season that I started to understand why I was running over there. And it's like, okay, so no one explained that to you? I, he wouldn't do film study anyway, so it really wouldn't matter. But some guys get it, some guys don't. But they that's where I think Doug, if he is still on the coaching staff moving forward, we have no idea about that. But that's where Doug can really pull some of these guys, these perimeter guys and say, this is why we're doing it this way. If you do this, then it stops this from happening. And I think that that's something that um, we're going to have to see a lot more of. The, uh, the overall defensive IQ of this team has to rise. The easiest way to do that is bring in better defenders. But you also have all these players here that you need to get better. They need to get better defensively. And if they have the tools to get better defensively, they need to get better defensively because there's only so much Sabonis can do. Like, there are limitations to him as a defender. He is not, but there's also limitations to every single big man as a defender. There is no one big man that can basically erase everybody. We're seeing Rudy Gobert get just abused on the perimeter like he always does in the playoffs, which has always been the problem, uh, which is why you don't bring in Hassan Whiteside to be his backup because then 
as Owen Whiteside just gets torched on the perimeter too. You're just going to get torched by everybody on the perimeter. I guess that's the the name of the game. Um, but when it comes to like the players around Sabonis, you need length, you need speed, you need guys who will fight to stay in front of their their men. And uh, there's a, a with the the Kings film room uh, on Twitter. The Kings film room put up a a video uh, breaking down. Uh, De'Aaron Fox. So shout out to you. You did a good job. I, I enjoyed watching the video. Um, there were a lot of plot positives, but if you go to the defensive portion of that, where you see where De'Aaron like, lets on and off the gas on the defensive end, you can see how that's a problem. How And, and that's not he's not the only one. Like There's so many players on the Kings that do the same exact thing. But when it comes to Fox, if he's going to be like the guy, like he has to fight through screens for, for 35 minutes he can't fight through screens for for you know 14 minutes of the game and then not fight through screens on the other part and you get torched um so like that's how i think where sabonis he's going to be a solid team defender he's a solid uh like communicator he's a solid rotation guy he actually defends the three better than i thought he does he's willing to take a charge here and there he doesn't let anyone just run you over Um, but at the end of the day, if you see him standing in the key and you're an athletic guard, you're going to go up and high over the top of him almost every time and have no problem. Like defensively center is the most important position in, in basketball for good reason. Just deterring and blocking shots at the rim is so crucial. Everybody's looking for twos and threes, most efficient shots in the game and, and denying at the rim is extremely important. I personally think that unless you're talking about getting a Chet Holmgren who has Defense Player of the Year potential, like some Evan Mobley, crazy outliers like this, right, that you're probably just not going to have a great defense. You know, like, I think that there is ways to improve. There's a lot of engagement issues I think we saw with De'Aaron Fox. I think that Davion Mitchell and Dante DiVincenzo are, are solid defenders, like definitely improvements from what you're talking about with Buddy Heald at the beginning of the year or Marvin Bagley when he's out there. Rashawn Holmes wasn't very good defensively when he was out there um, this season. Like, I think there's definitely ways to improve. But to me, when you're building around DeMontis Sabonis and De'Aaron Fox, you're trying to be a really, really high-caliber offense, and then your defense is just enough. Because it's going to be tough to be a good defense with that duo. Just being blunt. Like, 27th in defensive rating this year. Not okay, but like somewhat expected in a way. It's the 24th in offense where it's like that just can't happen. No, it can't. But I'll also say that, like the final 15 games of the season, I mean, they're really around 22nd. But the final 22 games of the season, you took away like most of your main cogs. And and it also stopped uh, Harrison Barnes stopped being like super productive in that time, too. So uh, I think that there are ways where the defense, I mean, the offense can be better and, and I agree with you on the defensive end. I will say this. When you take out uh, Buddy Heald and you take out Tyrese Halliburton and you replace them with Dante DiVincenzo and with Davion Mitchell, you can take a step forward. Um, but again, those guys have to play in order to be really impactful. They have to play, you know, 28 to 32 minutes a night, each of them. And so you need to find ways to to supplement, to bring in guys. And we talk about like, you know, we're, we would both be okay if Trey Lyles came back. Well, Trey Lyles isn't going to help your defense. Like that's just not it's just not going to happen. I mean, Trey Lyles is a is a stretch four, but really defensively, he's an undersized f- 
five. I mean, he doesn't have the lateral quickness to to defend fully on the perimeter. He's okay, but again, if you're going to have him, then you need a flat-out eraser with him. I mean, like, you have to have somebody who's incredible at blocking shots and rotating and defending. Like, the Kings don't have that guy. And so, like, there are so many little pieces that are missing here that you have to fill. And I like, like, what you talk about with Chet Holmgren. I mean, the Kings landing the one pick, the number one pick in the draft, there's, what is there, a 7.2% chance of it, something like that. Um, So there's an opportunity, but, like, we're talking about pie in the sky here. Like, there is not going to be another player, uh, again, if you land the one or the two. So now we're looking like a 14.6% chance, right, of moving into the top two. Well, again, like, if you're not getting there, like, who can help you? And I don't think that there's a guy in the draft that you can just say, okay, he's going to be the perfect fit that will erase things and, and cover all the weaknesses of Sabonis and and some of the weaknesses of Fox. And uh, so that's an issue. And you're going to need to address that issue, whether it's in the draft or it's free agency or if it's via trade or, or whatever. Yeah. I think by take or, or concern there, I, I think like something that we kind of saw this year, and this year had a lot of complications to it, is just don't get so caught up in quieting the mistakes and fixing the mistakes that you lose your strengths in the process. Because you have to have strengths. I don't know that we can look back on this Sacramento roster this season and say that they were good at anything. I agree um, 100%. It, and that's an issue. Like, next year, the team should be good at ball movement, playing in pace, and getting in transition often. Like, I don't know, pace is the one thing we heard all year about, like, this is what we should be the fastest team in the league. Our strength is our speed. To me, that just means you don't have anything that you could be good at every team is good in it in a full court situation where they're they have an, an advantage already you know like I, I do think that you can try to get to that more often but defense is where you're actually going to get transition opportunities you're not a very good defense like so to me just make sure that strengths already clearly exist with this team and I don't think that's going to be defensively you know of, of the bottom 10 teams this year in defensive rating there's a couple that made the, the play-in with the Charlotte Hornets and the Atlanta Hawks, but the Chicago Bulls are the only team in, in bottom 10 of defensive rating that actually end up making the postseason, and they're sitting at 13th in offense. I mentioned Charlotte making the play-in with a bottom 10 defense. They were 8th in offense. Atlanta, bottom 10 defensive rating. They're 2nd in offense. So you're going to... Like, I don't see a route to where this team's a top. Uh, honestly, I, I think they're still a top, bottom 20 or a bottom 10 defense next year. It, it's hard for me to picture a world where they're above that. So make sure you are really good on offense. That's just the way that I'm viewing it. No, I, I mean, I fully get what you're saying. I mean, again, to rewrite the entire roster, it's, it's going to be very difficult. Um, and I, again, I, I think a, a really strong defensive coordinator could help you. I think adding the right pieces can help you, but there isn't one thing that's going to totally fix everything. I think the one area where I can tell you that I think they will improve is second chance points, and that's because Sabonis is such a good defensive rebounder, and your team is better as a defensive rebounding team with him on the floor. That will actually make a pretty sizable impact, 
And I think that there's a possibility that you could get into out of the top, the bottom 20 in defense, um, well, out of the bottom 10 in defense, if just on that alone, like you could get close, you could probably get to number 20, the 20th worst defense, you can maybe get to 19 or 18, um, just because you could be an exceptional rebounding team, especially if you add one more really really good piece at the four that can rebound. So Marvin again, Bagley. Yeah. There it is. The Marvin Bagley reference. The missing um, piece. Yeah. No, I mean, if you talk about a guy like John Collins, who, you know, has had a, a 2010 season who, or close to it. Um, if, if you're looking at that type of rebound, a guy who is going to get eight to nine rebounds a game. And then let's say you do something crazy, like start Dante DiVincenzo. All of a sudden, you become one of the best rebounding teams in the league. Even if Harrison Barnes and De'Aaron Fox are still on your roster, you're one of the best defense. You're one of the best rebounding teams on the league and in the league, and that will help your defense. That will like unequivocally, it will help your defense because you're not giving up all these second chance opportunities. And there were times this season where the Kings were just so bad, so bad on second chance opportunities. And I know they came into one game saying, "Oh, we've got to keep them off the glass. We got to keep them off of the glass." And the team had like 24 second chance opportunities in the first half. And we're like, what in the world? And the Kings made an adjustment and got back in the game, but it was too late. You already lost because of the one thing that you said you were going to do coming into the game and did not do. Yeah, totally. And I think that defensive rebounding is Demonis Sabonis' best defensive aspect. Um, it's extremely important, you know, the period on a, on the end of a possession there was a game earlier this year, um, and I'm, I'm sure there's more than what we could just like visually see on the court, where Sabonis was getting on his teammates because he's the one boxing out, but the guards didn't come in and secure the board. Oh, and he was pissed. Right after that, he's clapping in their faces. I want to say it's Davion. And, and I think it was Chemezi. I, th- I think I, it was, yeah. Yeah, I think there were two that he, he was, was not to. happy that he cleared out two dudes and the ball bounced three times and the other team eventually got around him. I think he got even, he even picked up a foul because he was trying to hold two guys off, and then he ended yeah. up fouling one of the guys who ended up getting the ball, and he was so angry that the that no one else came to get the rebound. Yeah, he he demands it, and I like that. I, you know, so um, okay, so we've covered uh, Sabonis pretty heavily, and the Kings are going to have a tough time fixing all of this in one off season. Um, but I think the one thing that that we've learned from Sabonis dealing with him like the handful of times that we have he's a straight shooter he appears to want to be in sacramento he appears to want to make changes he's a no-nonsense guy he's not a guy who's going to let go of the rope and allow things to happen he's going to scream and yell he's going to be forceful he's a pros pro um, but he's also someone who is super intense and wants to win and uh, I, I think that that's where He's looking to put his flag down and say, this is my NBA home. And in order to do that, I think we all have sat here and said, oh, he's got to, you know, the Kings have to do this, 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 and this to make sure that they keep Sabonis. And there are still things that Sabonis needs to do in order to earn like a max money deal or a huge monstrous five-year deal. We we assume that that it's going to just go smooth and it's going to be like a perfect rise and that there's going to be this, you know, like combination between him and Fox. It just works. But, you know, if the Kings don't start turning the corner here, it's hard to to put all kinds of money into two players that, you know, maybe can't make it work. 
And so uh, I definitely think he has a personality and uh, the leadership skills to be an answer, not uh, part of the problem, but part of the solution here in Sacramento. Yeah, I love the wording. Part of the pro- part of the solution, not part of the problem, for sure. And he's, you know, two weeks removed from being 26. Like, I don't know how much improvement I'm necessarily expecting from Sabonis himself. I, I think a lot of it just comes with getting used to this group, but it's certainly not without the re- or out of the realm of possibility that he just continues developing his own game. Like, I, I think that mid-range and three-point shot is what specifically stands out to me that you know, I don't know this for certain, but it didn't seem like something that he did a lot in Indiana, even in practices and stuff. And meanwhile, in, in Sacramento, like every single big man is shooting 100 threes every practice. Um, so hopefully we see some, I mean, seeing some individual progress would be more than welcome for the Sacramento Kings, I'm sure. And, you know, maybe it's possible. Like I said, two weeks removed from 26, De'Aaron's right around the same age. And maybe we see some individual progress from that duo along with complementary progress from the staff whether that be the other players on the roster or or the coaching staff and hopefully there's notable improvement because there certainly has to be there certainly has to be uh yeah so i think you know again we're at this point where you hope that they they can put guys around these pieces and and hopefully that that changes and all that stuff um, I, I do think that, again, I, I'm excited to see where he goes. And, uh, you know, I think because of the style of play, he has at least a solid eight years of high-level NBA basketball in him because of his style. And I'll even say this. I, Fox has had some injury things here in the last two years, uh, one of which was COVID at the end of last season, which cost him a bunch of games. And, and the Kings didn't want to bring him back because they were in the same situation they are this year where they weren't going to make the play in and they kind of like put their foot off the gas. I think Fox would have played more games than he needed if he needed to, but he wasn't needed because this team was not going to make it. And so again, I think that this team, they could, they could be a really strong duo for a long time. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, like we're going to talk about coaching, st- uh, the coaching hires like here, uh, the potential coaching hire here um, throughout the next couple of weeks. Um, I, I've touched base uh, a couple of times. I still haven't got like a distinct list, um, although plenty of names have been mentioned with regards to the Kings and who they might chase for the the 20th coach in the Sacramento era of Kings basketball. I think it's the 20th coach. Um, it's really hard to, I mean, we have to count Jerry Reynolds like six times. Um, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, Jerry was a coach, I think three times, three separate times. Um, but um Look, we're starting to see some names pop out again. Um, we've seen the list that includes like Terry Stotts, Steve Clifford, um, Mike Brown, um, Kenny Atkinson, uh, Charles Lee, and Darvin Ham. Uh, yeah, uh, we've started to see other guys. Like again, I'll, I'll continue to say this. Like, I don't think it's like a foregone conclusion that Quinn Snyder will be back in Utah. I also think it would be very difficult for the Kings to talk Quinn Snyder into coming to Sacramento. I think I'm not positive of that. There's a possibility there. Um, But again, I I think the one thing that I've mentioned on the radio, I wrote it on Sunday, is this weird connection that Wes Wilcox has with so many of these coaches. And uh, it started like early in 
Wes Wilcox's career, he was an assistant coach and then went into the front office with the Cleveland Cavaliers. The year before Mike Brown was hired with the Cleveland Cavaliers to run their team, to be their head coach, he was an assistant. And so he was with Mike Brown, not as an assistant, but in the front office uh, with Cleveland Cavaliers. Then Wes went on to to uh, the front office with the Atlanta Hawks. And the Atlanta Hawks, under Mike Budenholzer, have this incredible, like in 2013-14, their, their coaching staff was Quinn Snyder, Kenny Atkinson, Darvin Ham, uh, and Taylor Jenkins. The next year, Quinn leaves and, and goes on to take on the Utah Jazz uh, team, and they add Charles Lee. And this is really like a huge group of the people that we're talking about. So it's interesting that Wes Wilcox has ties to all of them. Um, of course, Lee and Darvin Ham have been in uh, Milwaukee with Budenholzer again for the last couple of years. Um, they've been with him for for a long time, uh, and I, I think one of them, I think Lee has been with him for eight seasons, maybe nine, and Darvin Ham has been like either nine or ten seasons with Budenholzer, but also a couple more years in the league uh, coaching with Mike Brown in with the Clippers. So I think, you know, the NBA coaching world is like six degrees of, of, uh, Greg Popovich. Like that's kind of the way it goes. Everyone is like, there's a way that you've touched a coach's careers throughout the league. Um, but I I still think that this is a strong group that they're going to look at. And it's going to be a lot of guys that are, that have ties to Wes Wilcox. And you hope that that's a good thing that they have ties to Wes, uh, you know, there's always possibility that, you know, conflicts or whatever. We have no idea. Um, but you can't just assume just because two guys worked together in the past that they had one work together again. Uh, but what are your thoughts on that? And, and who do you like out of that group? Yeah, I mean, I think the Milwaukee assistants intrigue me, but it's hard to grasp or have an understanding of what they're responsible for and and what it would look like if they were to take on a larger role. You know, some of these other guys, like Terry Stotts, is an easier guy to make a case for, for example, because he just has a track record already being the number one guy The when he was coaching the Portland Trailblazers. And I think that team performed pretty well, um, especially when you see the falloff they had after he was let go, which is due to a handful of reasons. But, yeah, I mean, I, I think that, it's easier to make a case for guys that have already had jobs. Like uh, I think Kenny Atkinson's interesting to me, but I don't know. I, I can't help but lean towards these two Milwaukee guys in, in Darvin Ham and Charles Lee, you know, seeing the other names that, that came from that group. And, and that Atlanta coaching staff is crazy. For that to be, what was it, four or five guys, not including Budenholzer, who are either have been head coaches or in conversations and likely will be at some point in their career is a very impressive staff to be around. So I think the Milwaukee guys are interesting to me, but it's hard to have a great grasp on them exactly. Um, but young guys that you could grow with are, are certainly intriguing to me because it's a young duo with Fox and Sabonis. And I think growing together could be really valuable, kind of like we're seeing going on with the Memphis Grizzlies a little bit. When it comes to the West connection, I don't really know what to make of it. Like, guys are around each other a lot. You know, I, I think that different teams kind of, if you go to other different teams, like the NBA is not that big 
of a circle, right? Like it, mm-hmm. it is, but it's also not, if that makes sense. So where you're going to be rubbing shoulders or have run-ins or technically worked with certain people, but a lot of them are, are tied to Wes. Um, so to me, I'm like, you know, it's probably fairly coincidental and a slight aspect of Wes just has some better knowledge of these guys because he's worked with them. Um, to you, does it mean anything deeper than that? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I think it's, um, I, I'm not going to say like it's it's a way that Wes is gaining power or something. Um, you know, I, I think that like you want familiarity. Um, there, there could be someone who comes in and just blows you away, right? But uh, the guys who are good at like PowerPoints, that doesn't mean they're going to be good at coaching. So I would actually do something absolutely wild. And like, I would interview everybody multiple times. I would have a lot of conversations around the league about who thinks what about who. Um, I would go to, um, you know, we always talk about like whether Sabonis or Fox or Harrison Barnes would have input. I would actually go to um, Dante DiVincenzo, who just spent the last couple of years with Darvin Ham and Charles Lee, uh, and ask him what he thinks about those those guys as coaches. Um, I would also go to um, Justin Holiday because I believe he was with Atlanta at one point um, and could actually give you some intel on what he thought of them as younger coaches. And I, I think it's really interesting that all these guys have come up together and that are finding success or like on the brink of success. I think that's really intriguing to me because – what it shows you is that, um, like, Budenholzer spent, like, I think it was 17 years, uh, something really crazy with the San Antonio Spurs as an assistant. He was an assistant for a long time, just like these guys have been assistants for a long time under him. And that tells me that it's not just about, like, what are your responsibilities, because um, I, I think that that's part of it, but I think it's about what culture do you build and can you can that culture that you've built can you take it somewhere else and have it be successful and i I think we've seen so many popovich guys especially popovich guys that stay with him for a long time go on to have success because it's not just about x's and o's it's about how you communicate it's about the uh you know what you actually demand from guys how you approach the game, how you approach the off season. Like there's so many nuances to being a head coach. You would just think that it's X's and O's for 82 games. And it's not. They're culture builders. They're, we always talk about the culture. Well, that is where you need to, you know, it's where we're seeing Taylor Jenkins. Like his personality is all over that team. And you want to say it's Jaw. Oh, it's Jaw Morant. They got Jaw Morant. Except for they were almost unbeatable when Jaw Morant missed, like, what, 19 or 20 games. Like, that's a culture thing. That's You play against them. You watch them. You see how hard they play. They're playing hard for a coach. And that's, again, what the, always, the intrigue to Quinn Snyder's always been. But people play hard for Quinn Snyder. People love playing for Quinn Snyder. He's able to take guys that you know, either undrafted or, or like second round picks and make them into viable rotation, top end of the rotation guys again and again and again. That's the mark of a good coach and a good system and a good culture that he brings with him. And so that's what I think 
more than anything else, the Kings need a really good culture because you can get some X's and O's guys to change some of the the way that you, you know, your defensive designs or your offensive designs. And, you know, some of that has worked and some of it hasn't in Sacramento, but you can go get guys that specifically are good at those things. What you can't get is just stumble in and find a leader of men all the time and someone who gets everyone in the room to buy in. And that's where the Kings should be looking. Definitely. Culture has not been the most positive thing in Sacramento these last couple of seasons. If anything, it's kind of probably working against them and and some of their surrounding players too often this season and years prior. So I'm totally with you. I I think one of the most important aspects of... Oh, you're back. We were gone for a while. I am with (laughs) you on the idea of culture. And I think that it's been a negative culture in Sacramento for these past couple seasons and had a negative impact on a lot of guys. Um, You know, I, I think that like... Yeah, there's, it's had a negative impact on a lot of guys. And if we can see that turn in the opposite direction, the coaching staff is probably the easiest way for that to happen and coming in and instilling something new because what's been going on previously clearly isn't working with the Sacramento Kings. So changing the culture, I'm, I'm totally with you. Something that needs to happen. Okay, so we're going to wrap up the show with the business of basketball. And uh, Brennan is doing these incredible podcasts where they're they're literally taking like an hour and a half to go through two prospects and compare and uh, him and Bryant uh, over on the King's Pulse podcast. And you guys should be going over and checking it out and listening to him and, and seeing what you're thinking because I mean these it's just ways more more ways for you to digest some of the information, some of the the thought process, some of the pluses and minuses of players, but also some opinions on players and how people think they would fit. Um, and you know, Brennan, I'm going to ask you, uh, number one, like everyone always gets draft crushes, right? Um, I know it's early, but, uh, do you have a, do you have a draft crush right now? Hmm. Um, I mean, I feel like a draft crush can't be one of these like top four guys because I want to say like, it can be, but like, can I just say that I'm taking Chet Holmgren number one and not thinking twice about it no matter what team I am yeah that's fine yeah because last year like I fell in love with um with Evan Mobley yeah and with with Barnes with Scotty Barnes like both of those were super high on my list of guys that like you know if somehow you know Mobley slid at all the king should the king should still try to move up to go get a guy like that but go ahead yeah I mean the closest thing I have right now is probably Chet. I want to say like AJ Griffin would be the other one, but he's difficult. It's ve- he's very very raw, and I can't get over the defensive lapses that that go on there because when he's engaged, he's great. And I think Benedict Benedict Matherin falls under a lot of the same issues and a lot of the same flashes of strength. So I think those are the two guys that. I don't know, typically would be my prototype for draft crushes, but I think there's just too many defensive lapses. Like, my guys previously were, like, Isaac Okoro. I was huge on. I loved Isaac Okoro. Yeah. I think you could go get Isaac Okoro. Wait, who? I don't know that he, like, has panned out yet in the way that I thought he would, but he's still been a really good player. Who's that? Um, Okoro. Just still talking about Okoro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, 
trying to pull up years prior here. Yeah, like what was your draft crush last year, and who is someone that you you missed on? Oh, my crush was Franz Wagner. I would not shut up about Franz Wagner, and okay. I gotta say, I did I did pretty well with that one. You did. Um, he was my anti, and I wasn't totally anti Franz Wagner. I just didn't think that. No, I think he's a he's a stretch four. I don't think he's gonna be a, a three, and. Like, I was slightly concerned about how his game would translate to the league, and he's been extremely, extremely good. I, yeah. I, I, I did not want him at number nine. I didn't think he was enough. I, I think, again, like, again, like, like Keegan Murray, maybe I'm wrong, but I like him at 12. I don't like him at seven. You know, yeah. call me crazy. No, it makes sense. And I think, like, the questions where Franz are just like, oh, he does all the little things well, but what does he really excel at? And, I, I understand where some of that, those difficulties came from. I was probably most wrong on it, – it's still early to call just one year out, but Jonathan Kaminga. And I think a lot of it has to do with going to the Golden State Warriors where he's not allowed to just do whatever he wants. Like, to me, he was a mess. And there were so many moments of, holy crap, but look at that athleticism. Like, look at this flash of, of self-creation in, in this sort of build. I'm like, yeah, but, like, that's one out of every six plays, <laughs> and the other five are horrible. But he went to a system where he's not allowed to make those mistakes, and he gets to come up as a little bit of a role player and and fill a void on a roster rather than just ask to be everything. So I, I think that that's at least, I guess, maybe my excuse on – Kuminga. And, you know, actually, I'll say I think I was wrong with Davion, too. I really thought it was a really bad pick at the time, to be honest. And I think he's outperformed my expectations. I still think that if I was to be in that number nine spot, I, I wouldn't take Davion Mitchell if I was Sacramento Kings. But I, I think that he's outperformed my expectations just as a small guard, what he's been able to do defensively and have an impact on that end as a, as a player of his size. And, and the shooting has... Uh, been streaky, but I believe it more than I did at the time of the draft. Yeah, I believe in his shooting. I just think it's um, it's just a matter of him like managing his workload. I think he's going to figure it out. I think year two, he learned a lot in year one. I think he'll he'll be a a, a close to forty percent shooter from three for his career. Like Do you have anybody 38. from last? You have anybody from last draft? You feel like you missed? Uh, yeah, I think Franz is is pretty like I I just wasn't a huge fan. Um, I love Josh Giddy. I, I was one of the few people who were like, most people had Giddy around like between 15 and 17. And I was like, oh, no, no, no. I would take Giddy without any question at number nine if he was available. Of course, he wasn't there. Um, as far as misses, um, I, I think this has been a great draft. Like this is going to be one of those drafts that really does have like 10, 10 legitimate good starters. It may not have a superstar it could still have a, a superstar, but I don't, I mean, I think more likely a, like a handful of mul uh, multiple time all-stars, just not that next level guy. Um, and I think it's kind of like this year's draft where, well, I, actually, I think this year does not have as many potential all-stars. It might have a handful um, that could possibly get there, but it, I think it's harder to see a lot of these guys. And I think this draft is a lot more speculative than most of the the previous drafts and like again if i'm falling in love with a guy right now 
Um, you know, again, I like Matherin better than I like AJ Griffin, and I would be okay with taking him at number seven, um, even if he doesn't fit the need. Um, I still think he's going to be really, really good. Um, and then, you know, of course, I, I like the the top two, and, and Bancaro has grown on me a little bit. And I would take Jaden Ivey as well if somehow you landed for it. I would try to trade that pick, but I would, I would still look at it. Um, like, historically, I've missed a couple of times, but, you know. But, yeah. like, I could I could squint and see why, you know, Marvin Bagley should have been a 20-10 and 10 guy. Without any question, he should have been a 20-10 and 10 guy. And he just never stayed healthy. And, totally. you know, I, I still think, like, I, like, as a player, I liked him better than Jaron Jackson Jr. at the time because Jaron Jackson Jr. was a horrible rebounder in college. He's a horrible rebounder in the pros. He's a great defensive player or a, a great shot blocker. Um, so I think he would work. And, and, like, that's the package you're looking for to put next to Sabonis. But uh, still, I think, you know, I, I didn't I, – I'll say I, I missed on Trey Young. I didn't think Trey Young would, would be able to get off the shots that he does. And I also thought he would put up numbers, but I didn't think he would be on winning teams. And that might still be the case, although he did lead a team to the Eastern Conference Finals. But I think it was in a weird situation. Totally. Totally with you. Um, yeah, I mean, everybody's going to have – have misses just the nature of the draft and there's a lot of draft prospects that are very like boom or bust where it's high floor but low ceiling and I think like Trey Young kind of fell into that um mine my probably biggest miss since I like really really started diving in and that's in 2020 so we're only like three drafts in at this point um and maybe this is still too early to call because point guards take some time but I think that um wow why did the name just I just lost uh Killian Hayes Oh, I, I like really, really liked Killian Hayes, and I think that he still could turn it around. He's dealt with some injuries um, in his two years with Detroit now, but still think he could turn around. I thought he was really, really good on defense. I really bought the step back in space creation that was going on there, and it hasn't quite translated, but point guards take a little bit of time. And I will say, with that, with this year's draft, the or I'm sorry, last year's 2021, I think Cade Cunningham is a superstar. Okay. No, I mean I'm he all might get about there. Kate Cunningham. He might get there. Yeah, I mean, and I think that Evan Mobley is going to be, like, he'll be, you know, an All NBA player. I don't know if he'll be a first team All NBA player, but he'll be. I think he'll be a top fifteen player. Yeah, like, I, I think I like, absolutely adore like his game. I like again, perfect fit type guy. So, yeah, me too. Defense player of the year candidate. Yeah. Now I've got I've got dogs barking after all of this uh, mess that we've gone through. And okay, so. We're going to wrap it up. We've had internet issues. Uh, Isabella, our corgi puppy, is going to sit here and challenge me on Isabella the way out the door. Isabella does not like Evan Mobley. Yeah, she, she's uh, got her own little personality. Let me see if I can quiet her down for a sec. Yeah, I think, as people pointed out the last time I went on 1320 D-Lo and KC, uh, dog behind me in my camera pretty often since I've changed my setup. Anybody watching on YouTube, if you haven't, by the way, thumbs up, like the video. You can see the the bear that she decided to completely de-stuff hmm. right behind me here. At one point, I thought she was going to go at it during this episode, but she calmed down a little bit for now. All right. Yeah. Um, I, I'm dealing with, like, three dogs at home, and strangely enough, they've been quiet most of the time until we got to right now. Um, okay, so we're going to wrap it up. Um, so a couple of things, just a reminders. Uh, listen to the King's Pulse podcast. Uh, jump on and, and check that out. Uh, number two, we're moving the off the record with the Kings beat virtual happy hour to April 28th, not April 21st. 
uh, just some scheduling conflicts, um, hit the survey. Make sure you're you're doing the survey for us. Uh, jump on board with the King's Beat. Um, you know, subscribe. Uh, do a premium subscription if you can. It's gonna. That's how you get in the door for uh, the happy hour. And um, yeah, uh, thanks for joining us on this adventure. And uh, you know, hopefully uh, we'll have uh, you know some guests starting to roll in here in the next couple of uh, episodes. And uh, we'll hit this thing pretty hard. So, uh, Brennan, do you have any final thoughts? I hope that the Celtics sweep the Nets. Ooh. It's random, but I'm just not. I'm all about Celtics. I love that a guard won Defense Player of the Year. Oh, yeah. Yeah. M- Marcus Smart. Um, all right. Well, I'm dealing with dogs and, and having one of those days. Uh, the internet issues um, were a nightmare today, just in, in case you don't see it in editing, because I'm going to just sit here and edit this thing for an hour. Um, but uh, thanks for tuning in to the King Speed Podcast. For Brennan Nunes, I'm James Ham. We'll see you on Thursday.